Welcome to tape number three of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with chapter 4, verses 6 to 11. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. The sea of glass before the throne is a symbol taken from the brazen sea in the temple in which priests and victims were to be washed, Exodus 30, verse 18, and 1 Kings 7:23. This sea represents the same thing as the fountain open, Zechariah 13:1, which denotes the atoning and cleansing blood of Christ, chapter uh, 7.14. All who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God must first be washed, for the Lord had respect to Abel first and then to his offering, Genesis 4.4. Next, John saw four beasts. The translation here is faulty, as noticed by many expositors. Different words in the original Greek, not only different, but in some respects opposite in signification, ought not to be rendered by the same English word, for this tends to mislead the unlearned reader. He is thus bewildered instead of being enlightened. There are several beasts besides these introduced as instructive symbols in this book. Two are mentioned in chapter 13, 1 and 11, altogether different from these so different as to be antagonistic. Instead of beasts, they should have been called animals or living beings forever, for even the phrase living creatures hardly covers or conveys the whole import of the Greek word. 
The position of these four animals is worthy of special notice in the midst of the throne and round about the throne. How can this be? Well, if the seats and the elders occupying them are round about the throne in a segment of a circle as viewed by John, then it will be readily perceived that the animals seen from the same quarter would appear to him as occupying his space, forming a smaller segment of a circle between the elders and the throne. Thus, we have the relative positions A, the throne, B, the four animals next to the throne, and lastly, C, the four and twenty elders. The places occupied by these several parties are pregnant with scriptural instruction, as may appear when we come to the latter part of chapter 6. In the meantime, what do these four animals represent? Not the adorable trinity, as some learned men have imagined, nor holy angels, as more learned men have supposed and labored to prove. These animals are worshippers, verse 8. Therefore, they are not the object of worship. They are culpably blind who mistake the creature for the creator, Roman 1, Romans 1, verse 25. Other expositors have attempted, with greater plausibility but no better success, to prove these animals to be symbolical of angels. For this purpose, reference has been made to Isaiah's vision of the seraphims, chapter 6, verse 2, and also of the four living creatures which appeared in vision to Ezekiel, 1, verses 5 to 10. The identity of John's animals and Ezekiel's living creatures is argued especially from their number, four, and their faces being the same. To the thoughtful and unbiased reader, it is sufficient to reply that John's animals acknowledge themselves to have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, an expression which is inapplicable to angels. As the four and twenty elders and the four animals comprise the whole company of the redeemed, as distinguished from the higher and lower orders of God's worshippers, chapter 5, verses 8 to 14, and as the elders represent the whole church, it would seem to be reasonable to suppose that these animals are the symbols of the gospel ministry, and to this agree their functions as exercised in the farther developments of this book as we shall see. One plausible objection to this interpretation is grounded on the fact that their faces are the same as those of Ezekiel's angels, of an ox or a young calf, of a lion, of a man, and of an eagle. But each of the cherubims had four faces, whereas these animals had but one face each. Nor ought it to be thought incongruous that faithful ministers are represented as possessing some of the properties of holy angels when we find them called by the same name, chapter 120, and also when we find the Master directing them to imitate and emulate holy angels in their services, Matthew 6.10 and Psalm 103.20. 20 and 21. These animals, emblematical of the gospel ministry, are in number four, answerable to the universality of their mission into the four quarters of the earth, all the world, Matthew 28:19 and Mark 16:15. So the four winds, chapter 7, 1, mean all winds, as the lion, which is the strongest among beasts, and turneth not away from any, is distinguished for courage and magnanimity. So, as a symbol, it represents a ministry of courageous and heroic spirit, 
Luther in continental and Knox in insular Europe may be named as displaying this prominent feature of the ministerial character. The calf or young ox symbolizes patient continuance in well-doing amidst trials such as cruel mocking, etc. The face as a man indicates sagacity, Christian prudence, together with active sympathy. The flying eagle is emblematical of penetration and discrimination, ability to teach others from a spiritual insight into the divine character and purposes, and experimental acquaintance with the God of glory. All these properties are not to be supposed ordinarily in any one minister, but are just, but as distributed amongst the ministry at large, according to the measure of the gift of Christ, the Holy Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Ephesians six seven, excuse me, four seven, and First Corinthians twelve eleven. It may be remarked that in some cases all these properties may be discerned in great measure in the same individual. In the gifts and grace of the Apostle Paul may be discovered the boldness of the lion, the patience of the ox, the compassion of the man, and the soaring flight of the eagle. Our covenant God endows us servants for the service to which he calls them, always making good the promise, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. The six wings, of course, are expressive of the activity of the ministry in season, out of season, emulating the heavenly seraphims in serving the same Lord. They were full of eyes before, behind, and within. They are to take heed to themselves and to the ministry which they have received in the Lord that they fulfill it. Colossians 4.17 and 1 Timothy 4.16 They are to regard the operation of God's hand in providence so as to have understanding of the times and know what Israel ought to do. 1 Chronicles 12.32 They are to try the spirits whether they are of God, and after the first and second admonition to reject heretics. Titus 3.10 They are to oversee the flock. Acts 20.28 And to watch for souls as they that must give account to the master. Hebrews 13.17 As we may say with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? Modern prelates who arrogate to themselves the exclusive use of the scriptural official name bishop, generally manifest that they are only bishops, two-eyed, and not the many-eyed servants of Christ, symbolized by the four animals of our text, or the overseeing elders charged at Miletus by the Apostle Paul, Acts 20.17. While these men slept, the enemy sowed tares. In direct acts of worship, these animals, the ministers, take the lead answerable to another official name, guides, in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 13.7, verse 1 in the Greek. They are, as well, expressed by another phrase, the sworn expounders of God's word and authoritative rulers in his house. Destitute of legislative power, which in ecclesiastical affairs pertain to Christ alone, they are the authorized administrators of all the laws by which his household is to be governed. Hebrews 13.7 and 17 The language of adoration here is the same uttered by the seraphim, Isaiah 6.3. The holiness of God is that aspect of his adorable character which is most attractive to holy angels and redeemed sinners being the principal feature of the divine image reflected by themselves. Matthew 25, 31, Jude 14, 1 John 3, 2. 
The glorious being seen by John as sitting on a throne is the same who was seen by Isaiah 6.1 and precisely in the same attitude but called by different names. By Isaiah he is denominated the Lord of hosts. By John the Lord God Almighty. The context proves, especially chapter 5.1, that John envisioned contemplated God in the person of the Father, whereas we are assured in John 12.41 that Isaiah saw him in the person of the Son. Thus we may understand our Lord's words addressed to Philip, John 14.9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Hebrews, see also Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.15. Led by the four animals, the ministry of reconciliation, the four and twenty elders, representing all the redeemed of mankind, fall down before him that sat on the throne in prostrate adoration of that glorious being whose eternal power and Godhead are demonstrated in the volume of creation. We are thus taught that motive to acceptable worship of God are primarily to be found in the perfections of his nature as our beneficent creator, Perfections possessed by him in essential character, independently of all his works of creation and redemption. His worthiness of worship is inherent in himself, but outwardly manifested to intelligent creatures by the work of creation, of which he is the first cause and the last end, the efficient and final cause. This doctrine, understood by the intellect and unbraced in the heart, would greatly tend to hide pride from man. Job 33 17. Aside from the doctrine of the cross, which is still counted foolishness by our modern self-styled philosophers, psychologists, and free thinkers, there is enough here revealed of this eternal one to humble the proud looks and haughty hearts of these enemies of the king. Without repentance, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show no favor. For notwithstanding their pride of superior intellect, he whose judgment is according to truth has pronounced them a people of no understanding. Isaiah 27:11. It is no disparagement to those in places of highest earthly dignity as David, nor to the wisest of all men as Solomon, to cast their crowns before the throne of this only universal monarch, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 72, verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. The dividing of the books of Scripture into chapters and verses is not by inspiration. Fallible men have used their discretion in this respect, as they still do by parceling chapters into sections, paragraphs, etc. And so, although we have passed to another chapter, the vision is the same. The inspired penman has looked upon the great king surrounded by part of his retinue. In earnest expectation of farther discoveries, he beheld in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, or outside as in some copies. The book was sealed with seven seals. This volume was in the form of a roll, as the word volume signifies. The form of a book is determined by the kind of material on which one writes. 
this has consisted of great variety in the successive ages of the world. The first of which we have any notice in history is stone. When Job, in his affliction, was sustained by faith in the promised Redeemer, and when he would emphasize and transmit an expression of that faith to future generations, he thought of the nearest expedient familiar to his mind. Oh, that my words were now written, that they were graven with an iron pen in the rock forever. Job 19:23 and 24. On the same material, the law was written at Horeb. Exodus 24, verse 12. No doubt this was the usual method of recording events in Egypt in the time of Joseph, as the word hieroglyphics, or sacred sculpture, appears to imply. Next, it appears that the inside bark of trees was used for this purpose, as of birch, which has a natural tendency to curl or roll together when dry. Hence the word library and volume, or rolled bark. The Royal Archives, or House of the Rolls, is thus explained, Ezra 6.1. Vellum, or dressed skins of beasts, appears to have been next used. Then linen and cotton, and as now put through a chemical process, these are the material in most common use at the present day. Thus contemplating the symbol in the text, we may trace in our thoughts the gradual advancement of this department of science and the mechanic arts. The second stage of progress has been reached in John's time, from stone to the bark of timber. The book appears to have been of cylindrical form, but whether in one piece or in seven separate pieces revolving on a common axis, it is not easy nor perhaps important to determine. It is of much greater importance to know that the book is emblematical of the decrees of God. This will appear by comparing Psalm 40, verse 7, where we find the same symbol employed to represent the record of covenant agreement or stipulation between the Father and the Son, to which our Savior appeals as evidence in his case, Hebrews 10:7. While the symbol may be safely considered as involving all the purposes of God, it signifies here more especially the following part of the Apocalypse, containing, as it were, a transcript from the great original, Seals are for security and secrecy. Both may be included in the case. And indeed, there being seven in number, a number of perfection would seem to confirm this twofold meaning. The sealed book, symbolical of the decrees of God, comprehending all events of all time, teaches us the doctrine expressed in plain words thus, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15.18 the complex symbol also teaches more forcibly than in words. My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Some have suggested a little change in the punctuation. Instead of placing the comma after the word side, place it after the word within. The meaning would then be that the book was written only on one side, namely on the side within. We do not accept the suggestion. The reason is sufficient for his rejection, that the material in the time of the apostle was too costly to leave one half of it blank, and here our divine Lord speaks to us of heavenly things through the medium of earthly things with which we are familiar. Verses 2 and 3. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. 
Proclamation is made by a strong angel. The almighty monarchs herald to the universe, challenging all creatures to the task of opening the seals. His loud voice reverberates throughout illimitable space that all concerned might hear. The challenge is not who is able, but who is worthy. Who is worthy by personal dignity or distinguished and meritorious meritorious services to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No response come from any quarter to break the solemn silence. The whole creation is mute. Who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and in his, and his ways past finding out! Romans 11:33 and 34. And no man in heaven, the word man in this place, as in many others, an imperfect and inadequate supplement. In, in some places, it is calculated to mislead the unlearned and unstable, as John 10:28 and 29 in some copies, Hebrews 2:9. The former text, as supplemented by the word man, contradicts the apostle, Romans 8:39. The meaning here is obvious that no creature, angel or man, was worthy or able to open the book. To holy angels, devils and the dead under the earth, the purposes of God are as inscrutable as they are to us until they are revealed. Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1.12 Verse 4 And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. John understood by the symbol which he saw that its contents were of deep significance. A sanctified curiosity and anxiety more powerful than that of the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8.34, occupied his soul. But the book is sealed and there is no visible interpreter. Isaiah 29.11 The beloved disciple is much affected. He has more than once or twice beheld the glory of God and cannot but earnestly desire to know more of his mind. Hope deferred maketh his heart sick. He wept much. His covenant God had seen his tears. He will heal him. 2 Kings 20, verse 5. Verse 5. And one of the elders said unto him, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loosen the seven seals thereof. From a quite unexpected quarter comes a hint. How could John anticipate relief from such a source? One of the elders is made the messenger of joyful tidings. As Aquila and Priscilla took to them the eloquent Apollos and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly, Acts 18.26, so one of the elders, one of the humble disciples, was the instrument of comfortable instruction to the aged apostle. The prophet Daniel was similarly affected by a partial exhibition of the same important events, but his anxiety to know the meaning of the vision, though allied, was not fully gratified as that of John, Daniel 12:8 and 9. Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed. The desire of the best of God's people to know his purposes may be sometimes excessive as exemplified by the disciples of Christ, Acts 1.7. It is not for them to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So much, however, is revealed as may be necessary to their present support and comfort. 
and the rest they shall know whereafter, thereafter. Excuse me. John 13.7 But as the events involved in the secret purposes of God were concealed from Daniel, because not to be evolved till later, till near the time of the end, so in John's time, when as in Abraham's case, the time of the promise drew nigh, the time was approaching when the interest of God's people would be greatly affected by these events. It became needful that the book should be unsealed and its contents made known. The time was at hand. Accordingly, John is exhorted by the elder to dry up his tears, for to the unspeakable joy of himself and of the whole creation the announcement is made. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Here our attention is called away back to the famous prophecy of dying Jacob, Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, and also to the subsequent and concurrent declaration of the evangelical prophet, Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah in reference to his human nature, for it is evident from the inspired tables of his genealogy that our Lord sprang out of Judah, Hebrews 7, excuse me, Hebrews 7, 14. And it is no less evident that he is the root of David in respect to his divine nature, John 1, 1 and 3. Isaiah 9, uh, 9 verse 6 and 1 Corinthians 15 verse 47 the one mediator between God and men partaking of the nature of each party is worthy alone worthy by reason of personal dignity to open the book it is also to be be noticed that worthiness is not his only qualification in view of the challenge published who is worthy the answer is this champion hath prevailed Isaiah saw him in vision victorious over enemies, traveling in the greatness of his strength, Isaiah 63, verse 1. To his personal worthiness, it is to be added the unrivaled merit of his achievements in conflict with hostile powers, Genesis 3:15, Isaiah 53:12, and Colossians 2:15, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having se seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. In this verse we have the Lord Jesus Christ introduced to the view of John and the intelligent universe in his sacerdotal or priestly office, a lamb, as it had been slain. In the order of nature and of merit, his priestly office precedes his prophetical and kingly offices. This is evident from the position which he occupies in relation to the throne and royal retinue. He stands in the attitude of a priest in the midst of the throne and of the four animals. As seen here, our Savior does not sit on the throne. He appeared in a standing posture. His position was obviously before the throne. As the priestly function required, he stood nearest to the object of worship, between the ministers and the throne, in the inmost circle. There he exhibited the scars received in war, the wounds made by the sword of divine justice, Zechariah 13.7, the holes in his hands and side by the nails and soldier spear, John 19.34 and 20.25. This lamb slain, typified by all the spotless lambs offered in sacrifice by divine appointment from the time of Abel, 
had been marvelous, marvelously restored to life as no other victim had ever been. John 10:18, chapter 1:18. The seven horns and seven eyes symbolize the power and wisdom of the mediator. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Colossians 1:19. He giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. John 3:34. Hebrews 1:9. Christ was privy to all the purposes of his Father, John 5.20, and the extent of his knowledge is limited in him as mediator, not only the authority and will of the Father, of that day and that hour knoweth no man, neither the Son, Mark 13.32. The same interesting and important truth is taught by the Father's holding the book in his hand, as also in plain words, chapter 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. No man knoweth the Father but the Son, Matthew 11:27. In office capacity, the Lord Christ is qualified to unfold and execute the decree of God, Psalm 2, 7, as more fully appears in the following part of the book. Verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. The Lord Jesus approaches his Father's throne to receive the roll. And with the prophet we may ask, Who is this that engaged his heart to approach? Jeremiah 30, verse 21. With all who are honored to surround the throne, we may joyfully answer in the words of the psalmist, It is the Lord strong and mighty in battle. Psalm 24, verse 8. He took the book. This action symbolically signified the authoritative commission given by the Father and received by the Mediator to proceed in the execution of the divine decree and in discharge of his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king, especially and more formally his prophetical and kingly offices. This ends the side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. No sooner does the Lamb take the book than all spectators are apprised of the act and instantly give expression to their confidence and joy. Among all the worshippers before the throne, the four animals take precedence and lead by their own example as before. Chapter 4, 9. They give glory to God Creator as in the person of the Father and now in the presence of the Father's manifested glory. They prostrate themselves before the Lamb in obedience to the Father's command that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. John 5.23 The four and twenty elders, the representatives of all the children of God, cordially join the ministry in these acts of solemn worship. Some of the furniture employed in the temple worship is here introduced to harmonize with the rest of the symbolic scenery. Harps and golden vials signify praise and prayer. Our modern advocates for instrumental music in God's worship to be consistent must associate with the harps, the incense cups, and the golden altar, for all belong alike to the service of the temple. Even in the time when such vessels of the ministry were in use with divine approbation, the psalmist had greater clearness, more evangelical conceptions of the temporary use of these beggarly elements, whereunto many desire again to be in bondage, 
than they seem to have. Galatians 4, 9. He knew even then that the incense and the evening sacrifice represented spiritual worship. Psalm 141, verse 2. Others there are who question whether Christ as mediator be the formal object of worship. While they acknowledge his supreme deity as God equal with the Father, they are in doubt as his assuming human nature, whether as such he is the object of worship. Such doubts are groundless and unanswerably shown in this place, as unanswerably shown in this place, and in many others, such as John 20, verse 28, 21, 17, Psalm 45, verse 11, Psalm 97, verse 7, and Hebrews 1, 6. All these worshipers appear to know that the nature of the altar at which they worship determines the kind of oblations to be offered, namely, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. They sung a new song. They all agreed in the matter as well as in the divine object of worship. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Isaiah 5.1 Agreeable as to the object and matter of the song, none is silent in Emmanuel's praise. No select choir, not one who worships by proxy. Such belong to a different fellowship. This is the song of the Lamb, which joined to the song of Moses constitutes the whole of the high praises of the Lord, leaving no place for the vapid, empty, bombastic, amorous, and heretical effusions of uninspired, uninspired men, whether of sound or corrupt minds. The burden of the song is the same as the Song of Songs and the 45th Psalm, Christ crucified, Christ glorified, the praises of him who hath called them from darkness into his marvelous light, the keynote among them all is the work of redemption. Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, us, and not others in the same condition. Others may talk of a ransom that does not redeem, but these dwell with emphasis upon the price and power that brought them out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This happy and joyful company never conceived the idea that, in order at once to vindicate Jehovah's moral government, and give the most impressive demonstration of his opposition to sin, he subjected his beloved son to untold sufferings which should be equally available by all his enemies, but specially intended for none in particular. They never imagined that their adorable creator was under a natural necessity of seeking the greatest good of the num greatest number, that he might thereby escape the just imputation of partiality, such impious conceptions implied distributive injustice on the part of God when he spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. Second Peter 2.4 Neither man's chief nor God's is the happiness of creatures. No, neither in creation nor redemption, as is clear to unsophisticated reason and, plain determined, excuse me, and plainly determined by the Spirit of God. 
see chapter 4, 11, Isaiah 43, 7 and 21, Ephesians 1, 12. The manifestation of his own perfections, his own glory, is the highest and ultimate end of Jehovah in all his purposes and works. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Proverbs 16.4 and Romans 11.36 Now, if the Lamb had redeemed the whole human family, as some affirm, then it will follow that all must be saved, or Christ died in vain, in reference to them that are lost. And besides, the judge of all the earth would be chargeable with exercising distributed injustice in exacting double payment, first from the surety and then from the sinner, that by far from God, excuse me, that be far from God. He is just in having salvation, a just God and a Savior. Zechariah 9.9, Isaiah 45.21 As there can be no liberty without law, so can there be no mercy without justice, though there there may be justice without mercy. James 1.25 and 2.13 This worshiping company, the representatives of the universal church, ascribe their redemption to the blood of Christ. It is their declared faith that pardon is grounded on atonement that without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 and Leviticus 17.11, chapter 1, verse 5. They believe, moreover, that as the obedience of Christ unto death, his doing and dying is an adequate satisfaction to law and justice, so by compact between the Father and the Son, his penal sufferings avail the believing sinner for pardon. Thus it is that if we confess our sins, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, 9 This doctrine the Apostle, as the mouth of the whole church, had already avowed, chapter 1, 5, and 6. And now again we have it repeated and incorporated into the song of praise. Thus, while Christ crucified is to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, To them who are saved, this humbling doctrine is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 25 God's glory and the saints' honor and felicity equally spring from the slaying of the Lamb. These good things the blood of Abel's sacrifice spake and type soon after the fall. And here we have the same thing proclaimed as the faith of all believers. Hebrews 11, 1 By this blood they are consecrated a royal priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, and there is a period in the world's eventful history when they shall reign on the earth. Of the nature of this reign there are two views entertained, that of the millenarians under the supposed corporal presence of Christ, which is too gross after the manner of carnal Jews, the other too refined and remote after the manner of carnal Christians, who will not have this man to reign over them, except in the church. Such Christians come very near the views and sentiments of those who exclaimed, Not this man, but Barabbas. John 18, verse 40. Of this nature, of Christ's royal dominion, we will have occasion to treat in other parts of the apocalypse, but we take occasion to remark that his kingly office is formally and meritoriously founded on the efficacy of his sacrifice, Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain. 
that the saints shall reign in glory in company with their Savior is a precious scripture truth, but it is not the truth taught in the words, we shall reign on the earth. This is not the place to enter on a full discussion of the doctrine here avowed, yet the following may be adduced as part of the warrant of this doctrine. Daniel 7:27 and Revelation 20, verse 4. Verses 11 and 12. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten, ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessings. Here we have the concurrence of holy angels as seen by John in vision with all the redeemed in acts of solemn worship offered directly to the Lamb. Many angels. How many? Some divines have actually attempted by arithmetical rules to compute the number. Such employment may amuse, but it cannot edify. The definite here mentioned for indefinite numbers may be easily computed as in Daniel 7, verse 10, Psalm 68, 17. But still, we would labor in vain to find out the account, for we are expressly told that they are innumerable. Hebrews 12:22. Like the ransomed children of Adam, they are a great multitude of which no man can number. Chapter 8, verse 9. 7, verse 9. Why then attempt that which the Holy Spirit has pronounced impossible? Vain men would be wise. It is of much more consequence for us to contemplate their position, relations, and employments. Their position is round about the throne, beholding the Lamb as it had been slain. The law of their creation could not reveal to them this object of adoration. That they may know their duty to the mediatorial person as their moral head, it is requisite that they be directed by a new revelation. Accordingly, we find a new commandment issued from God the Father expressly to them. Psalm 97.7 and Hebrews 1.6 Worship Him, all ye gods, that is, let all the angels of God worship Him. By the development of the eternal counsels of God and His dealings with the church, these principalities and powers in heavenly places discover with adoring wonder more and more of the manifold wisdom of God. They stoop down, as it were, to look into this mysterious economy. Ephesians 3.10 and 11 and 1 Peter 1.12 They are humbly but intensely desirous to discover still more of the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto the glory of their fellow worshippers. 1 Corinthians 2.7 Such is their position. They are related to the Lamb as his subjects by the Father's grant and command. He, Jesus, is gone into heaven angels being made subject unto him, 1 Peter 3.22. They are also related to the elders and animals, the members and ministers of the church. Said one of them to John, I am thy fellow servant, chapter 19, verse 10. Angels are not ashamed to call them fellow servants, whom the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call his brethren, Hebrews 2.11. As the four animals are nearer the throne than the elders, so are the elders nearer the throne than the angels, these are ranged, in John's view, in the outside segment of the circle. All the redeemed ministry and membership are nearer of kin to the Lamb than the angels are. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Hebrews 2.16 
All believers are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, Ephesians 5.30. He has highly advanced human nature by taking it into real and indissolvable union with his divine person. This is the special ground of nearness and intimacy between Christ and his brethren. And oh, how we ought to emulate holy angels in adoring this precious Redeemer. He loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians 5.25. And he loved and gave himself for every member of the church, Galatians 2.20. The employments of this innumerable company of angels, besides ministering for them who shall be heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1.14, consist much in admiring contemplations of the glory of the Lamb slain and in ascriptions of praise to him who is worthy to receive power. In this, they cordially harmonize with the redeemed whose delightful exercise is to show forth the praises of him who hath called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 And all the honor thus ascribed to the mediator by both classes of worshippers is intended to terminate ultimately on the person of God the Father. Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11 the Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son that all men, yes, and all angels, should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. John 5:22 and 23. Verses 13 and 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing, and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth for ever and ever. In addition to angels and men, we have here enumerated every creature in the whole vast universe cooperating in the worship of the two divine persons as associated in concerting and executing the plan of redemption. Thus the host of heaven and all inferior creatures, according to their several capacities, unite in ascribing blessing and honor and glory and power unto him that sitteth upon the throne and upon the Lamb for ever and ever. And we may say with Nehemiah, they are both exalted above all blessing and praise. Nehemiah 9.5 Fallen angels and reprobate men are excluded from the nature of the case and by the unalterable laws of the moral government of the Most High from any participation in this service. Psalm 110, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25, Luke 19, 27. Can anyone who denies the supreme deity of the Lord Jesus or who refuses to worship him ever join the society of these worshipers? or supposing the possibility of their admission, could they be otherwise than miserable? Oh, the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews! This is one of the sublime doxologies framed by the Holy Spirit for the use of all creatures on special occasions, but not to be abused by vain repetitions as by papists and prelates. The like specimens of the high praises of the Lord we have in Psalm 69:34. As the three ranks of worshippers here presented in vision to John beautifully harmonize in holy exercise, each in its appropriate sphere, so the animals and elders, the rulers and ruled of the church, take precedence 
of all others in acts of solemn worship and also closed the solemn service saying, Amen. The sealed book being delivered by the Father into the possession of the mediator, the whole creation awaits with confidence and joy the development of the counsels of God as they may affect the destinies of his redeemed people. The Lamb has prevailed to open the book and his established character is sufficient guarantee for success in accomplishing the responsible work assigned him by the Father. This feeling of confidence is expressed by the worshipers, not only by the matter of their praise, but also by the closing word, Amen, which word is expressive of their desires and assurance to be heard. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The apostle saw when the Lamb proceeded to disclose the contents of the book by breaking the seals in regular succession. It is not requisite to suppose that each of the seals covers an exactly equal part of the roll. These parts may be quite different in quantity or length, it is obvious, however, that upon the breaking of any one seal, that part of the roll which the seal is intended to cover would be disclosed to a spectator's view, the whole of such part and no more. We shall find as we advance that the several parts of this book are in fact very different in extent. When the seventh and last seal is opened, the whole contents of the book must of course be disclosed, and it will appear that the last of the seals contained a much greater part of the roll than any of the others. To a superficial reader, this may be apparent from the circumstance that within the compass of this short chapter, six of the seals exhibit their contents. By the most learned and sober divines, the first six seals are considered as disclosing the events which transpired from the time of the Apostle John till the overthrow of pagan idolatry in the Roman Empire and the accession of Constantine. Let us consider the contents of these seals in order. Upon the opening of one of the seals, the first, of course, one of the four animals with a voice like thunder said, Come and see. This was the animal like a lion, emblematical of those bold and dauntless servants of Christ who took their life in their hands and went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8, verse 4. Many expositors of secular notions and affinities imagine that some one of the Roman emperors is to be understood as represented by him who rides on a white horse, Vespasian, Titus, or Trajan. To name such figments is enough to confute them in the mind of such as have spiritual discernment. White is not the divinely chosen symbol of bloody warriors or persecutors. It is most frequently the emblem of purity, legal or moral. Matthew 17, verse 2 and Revelation 3, 4 and 5. White horse may represent the gospel, the covenant of grace, or the church. In this chariot, Song of Solomon 3, 9, or upon this horse, as it were Christ, the captain of salvation in apostolic times, went forth conquering and to conquer. Much opposition from Jews and Gentiles was raised against his gospel, especially upon his exaltation to his mediatorial throne. 
But the opening of this seal discloses the Father's purpose to bear out His Son in extending His righteous, rightful conquest. Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 42, verse 4. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Psalm 68, verse 11. The bow and the crown as symbols combine the military and regal character of Christ, indicating His victories and succeeding exaltation. He shall wound the heads of over the large earth. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Psalm 110, verse 6. He is the Prince of Peace, and the primary object of his mission by the Father is to establish truth and meekness and righteousness in the earth. Yet he is a lamb, but a lamb that makes war, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Chapter 1911. In this last cited text, we have an irrefragable proof of the correctness of our interpretation of the symbols under the first seal. The writer's name is the Word of God, verse 13. This ends tape number three of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets. If you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.